Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 2. A Winding Path. In 1960, Stan Crook was accepted into Purdue University for the aeronautical engineering program. Smart people, he thought, became engineers and they built airplanes and rockets. He was going to prove that he was as smart as those people. Or smarter, actually. The first year of the program could be done at Purdue University Extension, a satellite campus of sorts, located north of downtown Indianapolis, which meant that Stan would stay at home, be near his girlfriend Nancy, and still be able to work at Rodenbeck's Pharmacy, where he'd been trying to save money. When the semester started, he still couldn't fully cover the tuition, but Frank Rodenbeck loaned him $300 and gave him a pair of used dress shoes to wear, and Stan's higher education started. He bussed to class every day, and when classes were over, he took a mix of buses back to the near east side, and he'd work from 5 to 10 at Rodenbeck's. Stan treated college like he treated all the rest of his schooling. Little effort into classwork, and just used his brain to pass the tests. There wasn't much time for studying around his work schedule, and anyway, he hadn't been able to afford all the textbooks. This worked for a year, and then it became clear to Stan, and probably to the school as well, that he was going to fail. From Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett, and this is Hope, Lies, and Dreams. In Stan's second year at Purdue, he needed to be living on campus in West Lafayette, about 60 miles northwest of Indianapolis. This was in order to access the hangar where the aeronautical engineering students had their hands-on learning. It was the first time he had meaningfully traveled beyond the borders of Indianapolis in his life. In typical Stan fashion, he did not attend the campus orientation for his second year because he was still working to secure the tuition money. So when he arrived among those red brick buildings, he was sort of lost and just in general feeling insecure. Plus, the classes were more difficult the second year. Math, physics, aeronautics, or difficult if you're not studying, as Stan mostly wasn't, spending his free time working almost 40 hours a week at a pharmacy near the campus. Adding to all this, Nancy got sick. She'd had debilitating migraines since she was 14, sometimes bad enough to make her vomit. This was different, though, serious enough to put her in the hospital. There was no official diagnosis, and Nancy's parents never told Stan much anyway, about anything. But regardless, he began hitchhiking back to Indianapolis once a week to see her. This was on top of the hours at the pharmacy, and all the classes, and that advanced math, and the physics calculations. He was soon earning the worst grades of his life, which is saying something, he told me. His weight had fallen, and the worry over Nancy's health had brought on a depression. It all suddenly seemed impossible. He took a long look around, saw the writing on the wall, and gave up on Purdue in his second year. Stan headed home to Indianapolis. Maybe it was better to stick with what he already knew. 
he transferred into Butler University's School of Pharmacy, the only trade school in Indianapolis. It was a five-year program, the math much simpler. I can add, Stan said, and that meant he could get by the same way he always had, spend his free time working, not study much, and then pass the tests. And that's what he did. Stan and Nancy got married in 1964, when she turned 17. Stan was just 19 himself. They moved in together and lived in East Indianapolis. But not long after their union, a cyst ruptured on Nancy's ovary, and she had emergency surgery to excise it. She wasn't watched closely in the hospital after the surgery, and she bled internally and nearly died. Another moment of terror for Stan, and Nancy too, and another incident in Nancy's long battle with her body. And amidst this trauma, Frank Rodenbeck sold the pharmacy to Jim Smith, who in turn sold it to someone else, and then Jim opened a new place in a better neighborhood. In Stan's third year of pharmacy school, Jim asked Stan to come work there. And to entice him, he made Stan a tiny owner of the new place. For the last two years of pharmacy school, Stan basically ran Jim Smith's business, he told me, helping triple the revenue with a higher profit margin. Now Stan was making good money, too. He and Nancy had a new car and were thinking about buying a house. Stan figured this would be his life. Why not? It was already a big step up from where he had come. But somewhere deep inside, Stan kept a small flame alive for a bigger dream. He must have, because he took the LSAT, the test required for law school admission. It was another half measure on his part. He had the scores sent to the law school at Indiana University, at Indianapolis. Not the good one in Bloomington, he said. But he never actually applied anywhere. And... One day I was home and the secretary called and said, the dean of the law school wants to speak to me. Okay. And he said, you know, we have your test scores, but uh, strangely, we don't have your application. And I said, oh, golly, I forgot to do that. And he said, well, here, let my secretary fill out that application for you. And so the secretary filled out my application, and that's how I got in law school. Things like this seem to happen to Stan all the time. This is why he says, to this day, that he's the luckiest person anyone will ever meet. It happened again while he was still in pharmacy school. Stan had developed a tradition where he skipped the first week of every semester. Initially, this was to keep earning tuition money, but by his fifth year, it had become habit. In his absence that first week of his final year, he was elected a class officer. It was meant as a middle finger to the school, he said because Stan often made dismissive comments during lectures or was sarcastic with professors. His classmates thought it a worthy joke to elect him as a voice of the student body. But being a class officer opened another door for him, again, by chance. Which meant for the first time in my life, I had to be in the office of a dean. I don't know what a dean was. Uh And a dean uh, to whom I'd been grossly unpleasant, I'm in the office doing some dumb thing, and he says, uh, what are you doing after you graduate? And I said, oh, I don't know, I'm going to run a drugstore. And he said, have you ever considered graduate school? And I said, no, what's graduate school? And he says, well, you know, we have a master's program, and why don't you go to graduate school here? I said, well, okay. And so they filled out the application for me, or Nancy helped me. And I got into graduate school. So that's how I ended up running a drugstore, being in law school, and going to graduate school all at the same time. 
Law school didn't last. Being in the law buildings felt like an old man's hotel, Stan said, and he dropped out after a week. So being an engineer was out, and now so was being a lawyer. But he did the graduate work at Butler and earned a master's degree in pharmacy, and then fell back to his plan of running some drugstores. Yet still, that flame flickered in his chest. Could there be more? He thought maybe. And it stemmed from his time at Purdue, when he'd known a chemical engineering student named Gary Keener, a big, tough kid whose dad worked in the steel mills. Gary was another son of the Midwest, like Stan. And we became good friends, and, and I played a lot of chess in those days. I played tournament chess. And, oh, you did? Oh, yeah. And I beat poor old Gary 500 straight games. <laughs> He's a very competitive guy. Um, Gary was an intellectual. Uh, and he, it was the first time I'd run into anybody who thought for a, as a way of living. So that, I, I always thought, I always read, I, I liked um, history and literature, that's what I really liked. But then Gary dropped out and went to medical school. Stan had rarely gone to a doctor as a child, or a dentist, as far as he could remember. He didn't know much about medicine, beyond what pharmacy school had taught him, or what he had learned through Nancy's hospital visits. Real medicine was a foreign world, but he stayed in touch with Gary after both had left Purdue, and watching Gary and his wife go through medical school made it a tangible thing, something Stan might actually achieve himself. And medical school also spoke directly to Stan's desire to keep climbing. I wanted the letters after my name, and I wanted that kind of control, that kind of prestige, and I was interested in cancer. When Stan had taken a class on cancer in pharmacy school, from yet another professor to whom he would not give his respect. He had what he felt was an original thought. Maybe what happens, he mused, is that when cells lice, as they do in their normal life cycle, the DNA in the nucleus breaks down and fragments enter the bloodstream where they are taken up by other cells. This, he thought, must be the cause of cancer. In fact, he was sure of it. He was completely wrong, of course, but the exhilaration he'd felt at his discovery stuck with him. And in that moment, he began to view science not as something you memorize and apply in certain situations, but as an exploration. And it stirred something in him. With Nancy's help filling out applications, he applied to a handful of mostly mediocre schools, including as far abroad as the University of Jamaica. He didn't have much hope, since his grades in pharmacy school had sucked, he said, maybe a 2.5. To little surprise, he got rejected by all of them, except Emory and Baylor University. The two good schools, Stan marveled. And the acceptance letter for Baylor came from the chairman of the pharmacology department himself, Harris Bush, who suggested Stan come get both a PhD and an MD and invited Stan down to see the campus on Baylor's dime. Stan, who had grown up listening to all that baseball with his grandmother and great-grandmother and who loved the sport himself, thought it sounded like a good chance to see the Houston Astrodome, which was new at the time. So he accepted the offer and he and Nancy flew down. The medical school at Baylor was run by a super tandem of Harris Bush and Michael DeBakey. Bush as chairman of the pharmacology department and DeBakey as chairman of the surgical department. And he was also president of the college after 1969. The trip changed Stan and Nancy's lives. Or more precisely, meeting Harris Bush at his lab altered the trajectory of Stan's life. Nancy and I went in. I'd say I'll be, I left her down in the lobby. I'll be back in an hour. 
Paris gave me a lab book, a, a white coat. I didn't know anything about science and said, here's your project. You're going to sequence U1A and RNA. Oh, okay. What's a, What's an RNA? I mean, I didn't know what RNA was <laughs> because I, I was trained in, you know, sort of the most primitive pharmacology. It was pharmacy school pharmacology of, of those days. And, you know, along around seven or eight at night, I realized it was seven or eight at night. In those days, I really didn't eat anything because I just used to not eating. And I always said, oh, shit. And I ran down and Nancy was still there waiting for me. And that's the first time I encountered scholarship, uh, medicine. He was hooked on true science and the voyage inherent in the world of research. Harris agreed to accept Stan as a PhD student, and Stan won a fellowship to Baylor. Suddenly, school made sense, Stan said, because he was getting paid to be there, instead of the other way around. And because he was earning money, it made the lab feel like a job. And Stan had always excelled at work, ever since his first newspaper route. Thus began one of the most important relationships in Stan's life. Harris Bush became the closest thing to a father that I've had, Stan said. Harris and his wife Rose also a researcher, introduced Stan to power science, to rigor, and high intellect. Just about anything good in life, actually, except love, which Nancy had already shown him. In a way, it was surprising that Harris took to Stan, considering Stan was so green. Harris was notoriously hard on his PhD students, and he didn't suffer fools. When Stan showed up to begin the program at Baylor, he could still see the remains of Harris's past battles strewn about, like warnings. Harris was... Uh, a really tough cookie. I mean, when I arrived, Harris took one graduate student at a time, one PhD student, and the previous PhD student was just finishing. And and the story goes, I wasn't there, but the story goes that Harris got so mad at him, told him he was worthless and didn't deserve an office and bodily drug his desk out in the hall. When I arrived, he was still sitting in the hall at his desk. So I wouldn't want you to think of Harris as as warm and fuzzy, but Bush had come from a modest place himself. He'd served in the U.S. Army, had worked for the U.S. Public Health Service after World War II, and had climbed hard and long to his current position. He saw something of himself in Stan. Uh, people were terrified of him. You know, I was born looking for a fight, so Harris and I just hit it off, you know. Years later, I asked Harris why in the world he took me. And he said, uh, I... I, I thought you were really smart, and I'd never seen anyone as angry as you. <laughs> Harris also introduced Stan to RNA, ribonucleic acid, the single strand of the four base pairs, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and uracil, found inside cells that play a part in protein production. This, too, was a big deal. It would help shape Stan's research interests for the rest of his life. After that initial visit to meet Harris, Stan and Nancy moved to Houston. In this new environment, with his intellect fully challenged and engaged, Stan began to thrive, finishing his PhD in less than three years and finding people at Baylor who felt and thought the way he did. He met John Rose in an elevator on the Baylor campus. John was in his first year of medical school there, another flyover person, as John said, who had grown up in St. Louis, though he'd gone to Princeton for his undergraduate degree. The two men bonded over being outsiders of sorts, both geographically and culturally in the middle of Texas. We were the 10 percenters. 90 percent of the school was, was good old Texans. And uh, then there were 10 percent of us from the rest of the world. And I was 
I was coming out of the Ivy League, uh, which was the you know the ground zero for again the Cultural Revolution in the late '60s. So we had a, a, a similar, like I say, a, a cultural and, and political viewpoint, which was not shared by a lot of Texans at that time. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about? Uh, just this cultural revolution idea. I mean, I understand the 60s was, you know, you had the Vietnam War, you had Martin Luther King, Civil Rights era. You're talking about all that. We had uh, women's liberation. Yep. We had, you know, the, the, the beginning of the uh, the gay liberation movement. That all was happening uh, basically between Boston and, and Washington, D.C., um, and in California, of course, in from basically the whole 60s. And again, I'm I'm not sure what was happening in in Indiana, but but Stan was certainly very much uh, for the new order. Nancy gave birth to Evan in Houston in the fall of 1969. A very difficult labor. Nancy hemorrhaged, and Evan was born with a low APGAR score. The test determines if a newborn needs immediate attention, particularly resuscitation, and scores range from 0 to 10. Evan had a score of 5, worrisome enough but not critical. Still, the whole event had been scary, and Evan was the only child they would have. Stan wanted more, but doctors told him another pregnancy would be too risky for mother or child. Evan would be difficult to raise. He was smart, but had dyslexia and a speech impediment that kept him from enunciating clearly until he was seven or eight. The only one who could understand him in those years was Stan, Evan told me. When Evan entered high school, he was trailing his classmates by four or five grade levels, but overcame the dyslexia almost through anger and sheer will, he said, and graduated with honors and made the dean's list. In this way, from the outside, his life would look a lot like his father's, a late bloomer who then flourishes. Evan's early troubles added another layer to Stan's now very full life in Houston. He was a husband with a partner who was sometimes quite sick, and the father to a child who needed special attention, all the while in the midst of a grueling PhD MD program. But Stan has never shied away from work. The problem wasn't exhaustion, but rather that there weren't enough hours in the day to handle it all. Stan won the award for the most outstanding student in pharmacology and started medical school in 1971, his PhD complete. He met Rick Hellman in orientation. Stan was now mature enough to actually attend orientations, and they too quickly became friends. Both were already married, both from the Midwest, Rick from Chicago, and both from working class roots. Rick's wife, Pat, got along well with Nancy, and they were a tight foursome. Stan and Rick spent free time playing basketball while Nancy and Pat talked, Evan right there with them, and then the group would eat a picnic meal because there wasn't money for going out. By 1975, Stan was nearing the end of medical school and his residency. John Rose had signed up for the National Service Corps to begin a career as a country doctor, someplace where the need was great. This appealed to Stan's caregiver mentality, his sense of a higher purpose and he and John discussed possible rural places they might set up a practice together. John Rose actually went on to have that career. He and a partner built a general practice in Brownsville, California, a town about 75 miles north of Sacramento, and still only around 1,200 people today. It's the foothills of the Sierras, beautiful and remote. During the next 45 years, John would see more than 250,000 patients, and his partner even more. It is satisfying medicine, the kind that requires creativity and fast thinking. I got a call for a guy that had a heart attack when he was putting a roof on a building. And we make house calls and things, so I actually made a roof call. I had to 
grab my little bag and climb up on a ladder on this roof where this guy was having a heart attack and stabilize him while the ambulance was coming. Uh, you know, delivered a baby in a uh, driving rainstorm at the office. We didn't have time to get to the hospital, so. Uh, and then while I was getting her ready, the lights went out and the volunteer fire department showed up and they had these big searchlights. And so they, that's how we delivered the baby in the middle of this, in the office. Uh, there, there's hundreds of little stories like this. Including once trying to shock a man back to life by using a car battery because the office didn't have a defibrillator. When I asked John about his career, he told me he could look in the mirror with a clear conscience. He's done the kind of doctoring that really matters, providing care to people who have no other options. This was nearly Stan's career, too. He would have been great at it, with his tireless work ethic, his understanding that the world is unfair and that many who need help don't get it. But that's not what happened. Harris Bush wanted Stan to become the head of the oncology division at Baylor, but that didn't happen either. The main reason is that Nancy was getting sicker. She had what doctors could only describe as a vasculitis. It was becoming a constant part of her life, and thus Stan's too. Fever, headaches, vomiting, weight loss, and bouts in the hospital. Whatever it was, it remained mostly undiagnosed and untreatable with any real efficacy. Finishing up medical school, Stan knew he was going to need money, not only for Nancy, but Evan too, who would require private schools for his learning disability. So Stan couldn't be a country doctor, and he couldn't become a full-time professor and an academic researcher scrambling around for government grants. Here's Rick Hellman. Senior year, our last year, uh, when everything should be, you know, roses, uh, is when Nancy was becoming ill. And this was very, very difficult. And they had had these ideas of what we were going to do. And and he had to make some really, really tough decisions in the face of basically working your buns off. I mean, you were medicine there, although the acuity in medicine is difficult to patients, but you really worked, you worked hard. And and he had to make this really tough decision about stepping into the world of, of pharmacology. I don't think Harris Bush was happy about it, but he had to do it. I mean, he, he knew what he had to do. What he had to do was go where the money was. In his residency, Stan had been seeing cancer patients, in particular testicular cancer patients, sometimes being the one to reveal a terminal diagnosis. These conversations required such compassion and intimacy that Stan called it an honor to be the one trusted enough to have them. In his experience seeing these patients, he'd come across a cancer drug called bleomyosin sulfate. It had a crazy chemical structure, he said, and it sometimes produced odd side effects in patients. The exact mechanism of action for the drug wasn't known, but it was thought to inhibit both DNA and RNA synthesis and stop protein production. In some tests, it had been shown to arrest the cell cycle and thus was used to treat cancers. Bleomyosin fascinated Stan, and he wanted to work with the analogs, so he called up the company that had them, Bristol Laboratories and asked for a job. They hired him. People like me, Stan said, didn't go to industry back then. And by that, he meant people who were accomplished researchers because Stan had already reached double digits in scientific publications from his work at Baylor. But also he had a master's in pharmacy and an MD. Even the year at Purdue didn't hurt. Those sidesteps on his way toward his true calling were now meshing into something unique in the drug-making world. Stan once told me he was born knowing how to make a drug. If that wasn't exactly true, it seemed like he was ready now. Stan and Nancy packed up Evan and moved the family to Syracuse, New York, in 1975. He became assistant director of medical research at Bristol Laboratories. When he got there, Stan realized there was no molecular biology department at Bristol, 
and not one at the upstate medical center where he did rounds with cancer patients. To develop drugs, Stan would need that kind of team, so he went to his boss at Bristol and asked if he could set up a lab at Baylor. His boss gave him $40,000. Stan turned to his old mentor, Harris Bush, who offered attic space at Baylor and some aged lab equipment, centrifuge, a battered refrigerator. Stan got the lab running and applied for some National Cancer Institute grant money, which he won. It was enough to get him started. He began flying to Houston every two weeks, and over the next five years, he trained five PhDs, including a researcher named Chris Mirabelli, and two master's students, and the lab published around 100 papers. He also lectured at Baylor, condensing his classes around his trips. He's funny and self-effacing in front of a crowd, and students liked him. He was voted favorite Baylor faculty member in the College of Medicine more than once. By any account, he flourished at Bristol Labs, too. Under his watch, the company got new indications approved for bleomycin and mitomycin C, as well as cisplatinum, among other cancer drugs. The cancer program he built, with the help of the research lab at Baylor, was thriving. He'd been promoted several times, and by 1980 was a vice president. He had quickly made a name for himself in the industry, and people began calling, including Smith Klein and French Laboratories in Philadelphia. The pharmaceutical company was on the upswing and flush with money from Tagamet, a histamine H2 receptor agonist approved for ulcers and other gastric disorders. It was the first drug of its kind. Stan saw a bright future for himself there and a ladder to even greater heights. And, and you know, my appetite was to be the, to win everything, to be in control of everything. I wanted to be an MD, PhD. I wanted to be a great scientist. I wanted to be the CEO of a big company because that was the highest wrong, nothing more, just that kind of naked, blind, uninformed ambition. Mm. That, that, that's honest, that is about as truthful as I can say it. Smith Klein knew it had a weakness. It didn't discover or develop drugs well. And they knew the money coming in from Tagamet would eventually be eroded by competition. They brought Stan on in 1980 as a vice president overseeing research and development. Stan Crook knows how to make drugs, they thought, and that was exactly what they needed. The company allowed him to build a gleaming new research facility on 300 acres in Upper Marion, the northwest part of Philadelphia, and he brought in academic researchers from the University of Pennsylvania to consult and collaborate. He knew, even then, that academic research could be more fertile ground for drug discovery than the staid halls of big pharmaceutical companies. All he needed to do was gather the talent and then guide it. Stan also gave himself plenty to do on the side. The University of Pennsylvania was rebuilding its pharmacology department and asked Stan to join the faculty, which he did, overseeing a collection of talented PhD students, including Brett Monia and Roseanne Snyder. He had given up the lab at Baylor, but was still a full professor there and regularly flew down to teach. He had his own lab in the research facility he'd built in Philadelphia and also had an office in the executive building downtown, where he'd go once or twice a week. Every couple of weeks, he flew to London to check in on a research facility there spending two days before flying home, where he'd crash in his own bed before going into the office the next morning. Maybe once a quarter, he flew to Belgium to visit the R&D team, where he supervised the discovery of the first recombinant DNA hepatitis B vaccine. He was also scheduled to go to Bangalore every year in December. But he never made it, not once in all his years at SmithKline. The reason was Nancy.
Stan loves literature. William Faulkner, Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, a little Sylvia Plath. He likes art, too, likes the history of it. But he has no talent for it. That was Nancy's skill set. She was a great pianist, for example, and followed contemporary music. For years, her younger sister had lived with them in Philadelphia, and one Christmas, the sister gave Nancy a collection of new albums. Nancy sat looking at the intricate art on the covers and thought they were original enough that she could curate a show around them. She spent two years flying to L.A. and putting together a collection of album cover art, and Stan and her wrote an accompanying picture book. Both were a success and led her to consider the other forms of art that musicians did, which she also turned into a show. Through this work, they got to know Cat Stevens, David Crosby. John Rose remembers coming to visit the Crooks in Philadelphia, and Richie Havens was singing in their living room. Nancy once got to be on stage during a David Bowie concert. So what can be said about the life of Nancy Alder? or Nancy Crook, for that matter. She emitted a kind of vibrant joy when healthy. John Rose adored her. Rick Hellman and Pat loved her too. Nancy had met Stan when his general opinion of women was low, given all the abuse and disdain his mother dumped on him. Nancy had changed that, shown him how caring, supportive, and gentle a woman could be. But something was wrong with her immune system, and there was no fixing it. It was bad genes, or maybe emotional remnants from her unhappy childhood that toxic environment she'd grown up in. Maybe just bad luck. Or maybe a mix of all that, as Evan thinks. She had been in and out of hospitals over the years, had seen specialists, and no one seemed to know how to heal her. In Philadelphia, it all got worse. She was in the hospital every few weeks. Her weight dropped to less than 100 pounds. In her last couple of years, she was often in bed, struggling with migraines, weak from the vomiting they caused. Here's Rick Hellman. She had this terrible vasculitis syndrome, basically, that was just refractory to therapy. And I don't know the particulars, but I know that she kept on having problems with clots and vasculitis and weight loss and fever and pain. I mean, she, it was not good. And, and there are these vasculitis syndromes. And I didn't, I didn't pry about the specifics, but that's what, and, and it was chronic and unremitting. Here's John Rose. It is an unusual vasculitis that uh, uh, is tragic, and, and the whole Nancy situation is tragic. Uh, just, just tore us all apart. Um, she was a wonderful, wonderful woman. Uh, brilliant, creative, artistic, uh, ex extremely lovable. Uh, and it was just tragic to get this illness that they couldn't do anything with. And, uh, yeah. Still hurts me to think about it. The last 10 years of the family's life had been difficult. The final five almost unbearable. Obviously for Nancy, but Stan and Evan too. Never a big eater. In the last year of Nancy's life, Stan himself had shrunk down to 130 pounds. He was also driving himself hard at work. Partly because hard work defines him, but also partly because it was a respite from the awful scenes at home. The sight of Nancy so frail and the depression her long illness was pulling him into. He'd hired all the help he could housekeepers, nurses. That had been the reason for his career in pharma, to get the money to care for his wife and his son. He'd done that. But her illness just kept getting worse, and Stan could do nothing but stand around helplessly and watch. I guess maybe five or six years before she died, I came to the conclusion that I was never going to be happy again. To Being not happy... People who have been that know that it feels like 
you move to a planet with gravity that's 10 times more. It's just this weight that you feel. So, and Nancy had become, um, she was never who I thought she was. I created that, but she became less and less. I mean, her life just wasted her. Yeah. Um, and I, I just saw myself taking care of her for the rest of her life and Evan um, and finding whatever moments of happiness I could get and however I did it. And, and, um, and I saw no way out. I mean, looking back, I'm really quite certain I could never survive that again. Until, finally, it was over. She died in 1984 at 37 years of age. Here's Evan. So I, um, I went to school um, one morning uh, and came back home, and the housekeeper was in the kitchen hysterical. There was nobody else in the house. And I was about 14, and she didn't want me going upstairs. And I knew instantly I had a feeling that something terrible had happened to my mom. So I, I, uh, I ran upstairs and then searched in the uh, master bedroom. She wasn't there. And then we, had, we were living in a pretty big house uh, uh, at that time and went down to the other guest rooms and so on. And then I went into one room. It was a guest room. And uh, I went in there and saw the bed. There was, she was not on the bed. I looked to the one side of the bed. She wasn't there. I looked to the left side of the bed, and she was there on the floor. Um, her feet were blue. Oh no. And so I didn't touch her. I was sort of in shock. I, I didn't, um, it, it registered in my head that obviously seeing blue feet was not a good sign. Stan got the news at work while in a meeting. My assistant came in and, um, I was actually, I mean, it was a big meeting. I was chairing it and said that uh, there was a problem at home um, and I needed to leave. Um, and it seemed very clear to me that something bad happened. And she drove me, she drove me home. Um, but I, I didn't know for sure that Nancy was dead till I walked in the house. By then, Evan was at the neighbors and Stan collected him there. A terrible day. It would reverberate throughout Evan's life. It was something they all knew was coming, but the suddenness of it still was traumatic. And, as is often the case, the ones left behind struggled with guilt. I remember um, that the night before, I had, uh, I was starting to get, I was in puberty. I was very irritated with my mom the night before because she, we, we were sitting down to dinner and she, um, uh, she was, I don't know, she, she was just sick. She was sick and having a hard time, uh, or she was just chewing with her mouth open or something. It was something that under normal circumstances I should have tolerated, but I, I didn't. I think I can make all the excuses in the world, but um, I, I think I was angry uh, at, at, at her illness, quite honestly, and for being ill and being weak. I think I was angry at her being weak. Uh, so I wasn't very uh, pleasant the night before, and we sort of got into a little bit of a verbal argument, and I was I was not um, as kind as I should have been or would want to be. So 
the next day, uh, when she when I found her dead, the second person to find her dead, um, that was that that weight was quite heavy. For Stan, it was something bigger. Given how much Nancy had supported him in his youth, how he'd clung to her, and what she had taught him about love when he had no idea what it was, it is not unreasonable to say she had saved his life. So beyond the pain of her passing, what hurt Stan was that in the end, even with his advanced degrees and his research and his access to leading scientific minds, he could not save hers. They had been married for 20 years and known each other even longer. She was the most important person in his life for decades. Stan knows that. We'll never forget it. But in his darker, most reflective moments, Stan will admit it was also a relief when she passed. Because at times during those final years, life did not feel worth living. And the two of them seemed locked in a death spiral, he said, that would never end. Now it had. Nancy's illness had kept her from fully participating in their life, but now Stan was truly on his own with his son. They had only each other. And in the wake of Nancy's passing, Stan and a teenage Evan formed an even tighter bond, forever loyal to one another. Maybe that helped. Maybe work also helped. There was always joy in the job for Stan, as there had been his entire life. But Smith Klein would come to an end, too. Tagamet had been discovered and developed by Smith Klein and French. The drug was a major breakthrough. The man responsible for it, James Black, would win the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1988 for his work with beta blockers and H2 receptor blocking drugs. Tagamet was approved in the UK in 1976 and the United States the next year. It immediately began racking up sales, and by the time Stan joined the company, Tagamet was sold in 100 countries. Smith Klein bought Beckman Instruments in 1981 as a growth strategy and became Smith Klein Beckman, but it could not stave off the inevitable. By 1983, the pharmaceutical company Glaxo had introduced a competitor called Zantac, another H2 receptor blocker, and the company mounted a heavy marketing campaign to support it. Tagamet still hit sales of $1 billion in 1986, making it the world's first blockbuster drug, and then peaked in 1987 with $1.1 billion in sales a massive amount of money at the time. But sales began to slip from there as Zantac took market share. SmithKline also had the diuretic diazide, which brought in hundreds of millions of dollars in 1986, but was hit by the first generic competitor in 1987. SmithKline had no blockbuster drug coming up behind Tagamet or diazide to replace all that lost revenue. And as share prices fell, the company took heavy pressure from stockholders. A merger seemed likely. Drug development. Research. That was Stan's area. By 1988, he was worldwide president of research and development, overseeing 3,000 researchers and a budget of more than $400 million. It was his job to generate new drugs, and he'd been given free reign to do just that, building the research facilities in Upper Marion to accomplish that goal. And yet, the drug Stan had resurrected did not sell, he told me. That included Aranofen, an oral organic gold compound for rheumatoid arthritis. It had high marketing predictions, but it fizzled when approved and eventually the space would come to be dominated by the tumor necrosis factor drugs. Stan thought the best thing to do was continue to invest in research. He was dead set against a merger, and he was very aggressive about making his thoughts known, he said. But his arguments were falling on deaf ears, especially because sometimes it seemed Zantac had simply marketed its way to the top. This was opening up a tension between Stan and upper management, 
And pretty soon it was clear that he wasn't willing to stay and that they didn't want me, he said. But there was something else, too. Everyone knew Stan was smart, and his work ethic was above reproach. He also had a reputation for being fair. He would never ask you to do something he himself would not. If he told you to be in the lab on Saturday, you were assured that he would also be there. But he drove his employees hard, and he was demanding, as always. Some chafed at that. Here's Fred Frank, one of the first original big-time bankers in the biotech industry, talking about what happened at SmithKline in those years. Well, I knew Stanley from his prior places. And I knew him quite well at SmithKline. I mean, actually, people don't really realize he was fired at SmithKline. Yeah. And um, why? He, he's, you know, he's very demanding of his people and um, a little bit too much of a control freak. Brilliant guy. I mean, his record of new product development is second to none. He's <laughs> an amazing guy. And, uh, but he doesn't tolerate anything but the best. And a lot of people can't live up to his standards. The firing stung. So much so that when Stan talks about leaving SmithKline to this day, he will stress that he was fed up with the glacial pace of big companies. And he'll point out that he'd learned that pharmaceutical giants like SmithKline can be nearly incapable of innovating. Both statements are true enough but that does not override the fact that they cut him loose in August of 1988 and replaced him with George Post, Stan's second in command. Stan once told me his three biggest faults are that he is intemperate, intolerant, and impatient. That can be seen in the angry arrogance of his high school years, and in pharmacy school too, when he didn't bother showing up for classes and disrespected the instructors. That impatience can be hard on those who work beneath him. It's possible he'd also adopted the confrontational culture he'd seen at Bristol, where the scientists briskly challenged any and all science in order to pressure test it. Or perhaps Stan had modeled his management style on Harris Bush, who had once dragged a PhD student's desk out into the hallway and left it there, publicly belittling the man because his science wasn't good enough. Whatever the case, Stan struggled to be a good manager at SmithKline. After his departure, the New York Times wrote an article on SmithKline's inability to generate new drugs and dropped the blame squarely at Stan's feet. The article described Stan's integration of academic researchers into SmithKline's culture as an unusual strategy and called it notably unsuccessful. The article paraphrased an academic consultant from the University of Pennsylvania as saying he doubted academics had the correct orientation to find major drugs, as if Stan had been foolish for thinking they did. On top of that, SmithKline, having seen what Glaxo did with its Zantech marketing, decided it would have the strategic marketing people work more closely with research a move that would take power away from the science team and give it to the salespeople. For a person who had built a research group where there had been none, and who had worked tirelessly, even as his wife's health slowly declined, this was particularly wounding. And that affected me for years. And, um, and you know, I had all kinds of other, you know, horrible life events going on at the same time. So it was... Um, it was one of the hardest things I've experienced, and it did me a lot of harm and took me years to recover that article because it wasn't true and it wasn't fair. I thought I was an enormous success at a very young age, and there were people who agreed and there were people who didn't, and that really infuriated me because I knew I had done great things. Firing Stan wasn't going to fix SmithKline. In 1989, it merged with the Beecham Group, forming the second largest pharmaceutical company in the world. But that was little consolation. 
Stan's public rebuke hurt because he'd felt like an outsider for most of his life, staring up. And when he'd finally joined these powerful people, they pushed him back down. Here's Jeremy Levin, the CEO of Abbott Therapeutics and former chairman of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. He has deep experience in the biotech and pharmaceutical worlds. If I were that person, I wouldn't have a chip on the shoulder. I'd be pretty damn mad. Yeah. Because to fight your way out of those circumstances and then to go into these very stately, very mechanistic, very process-oriented organizations and then to be successful and then to be rejected, you know, that's, um, that's a hard pill to swallow. If Stan had let any of his anger go during his success at Bristol, if he'd felt it dissipate with the control he was given at SmithKline to build a research group in his model, now it was back. He had worked like a dog for a company, and they had cast him out. SmithKline had told him his way of thinking was wrong when he knew it was not. The anger felt like he was young again, like he was a poor kid in the near east side of Indianapolis staring at the rich people, who were not as smart as he was and who did not impress him, and they were the ones running the world. So this is Stan at 43. His childhood sweetheart and mother of his child is gone. He's trained in pharmacy. He has a PhD in pharmacology, has worked extensively with RNA. He's an MD with years of experience seeing patients and fully understands their needs and their fears. He had seen firsthand the shortcomings in the ways big pharmaceutical companies make drugs. But also, he'd been publicly blamed by Smith Klein and had his name dragged through the mud by the world's leading newspaper. He was furious. The end of his time at SmithKline confirmed only one thing. He needed to be in a position where he answered to nobody but himself. And he'd do innovative science the way he knew it should be done and never deviate. It turns out that it's exactly the kind of person, the kind of temperament needed to develop a brand new drug modality. And for months before his firing, he had been working on an exit plan from SmithKline. Thank you, now and always, to Stan Crook. Thanks to Rick Hellman for his time and his thoughts. Thank you to John Rose for the insight into his old friend. Thanks to Fred Frank for his long view. And to Jeremy Levin, thoughtful, as always. And thanks to Evan Crook for telling me about his mother. Sound mix and original theme by Brian Flood. All art created by Aaron DeWalt. Hope Lies in Dreams was written and produced by me, Brady Huggett. Go to the homepage of Nature Biotechnology to find the landing page for this podcast, which includes a list of sources, historical photos, and a transcript of this and the previous chapter. Chapter three will be out in a week. Until then. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.